A teenager shocks his neighbourhood by killing his parents. Our moment in crime is the case of Leslie Arnold. Imagine if your only sibling went missing. Imagine if the events surrounding your brother's disappearance caused you to have a recurring dream in which you enter an old house and endlessly walk down dark hallways. For years, Jim Arnold had this nightmare, unable to get rid of the pain and anguish his brother had inflicted on his life. In 2008, Jim returned to his childhood home. Fifty years earlier, his parents had died in that house. Fifty years earlier, Jim's elder brother Leslie shot his parents to death. Quote, Les's temper had no stopper once it exploded. I always had the feeling he didn't understand why Mom and Dad had me when they had him already. Leslie Arnold's temper is one of the things Jim remembers most about his older brother. Leslie's childhood friends also easily recall his temper. If things didn't go his way, Leslie would fly into a rage, breaking model aeroplanes and hitting the roofs of the two cars his family owned. Sometimes he would use Jim as a punch bag, wearing socks over his hands to prevent marks. William Leslie Arnold was born to Opal and Bill Arnold on the 28th of August 1942. As he was named after his father, the boy was called Leslie to avoid confusion. The family home was located at 6477 Poppleton Avenue in the Aksar Bend neighbourhood of Omaha, Nebraska. At the time, the neighbourhood was home to one of the Midwest's biggest horse racing tracks. Opal stayed at home to raise the children, and Bill owned the Omaha regional office of Watkins Products, a direct sales company that sold spices, household items and cleaning supplies. Leslie found himself in trouble in grade school, but high school was a different story. His teachers at Omaha's Central High School liked him, and he earned B grades consistently. Leslie was dating a North High student named Crystal, and he enjoyed sports, earning places on the track, baseball and wrestling teams. Music was a big passion of his. One of his favourite singers was Elvis Presley. Leslie played the tenor saxophone. He was part of the Reserve Officers Training Corps, and his only write-up at school was for not wearing a belt. On the surface, Leslie seemed to be your average teenager, but his home life was different. After committing his crime, Leslie gave different reasons for his actions, but they were all linked by one factor, his mother, Opal. According to Leslie, Opal was controlling, had been hospitalised twice with mental illness, offered Leslie no support and favoured her younger son. One neighbour agreed that Opal treated Jim like an only child. Leslie told of how Opal would give him permission to drive the family cars when he asked, only for her to change her mind at the last minute. He mentioned how his mother disapproved of his girlfriend, Crystal, and went so far as to call her family trash. 
Leslie believed that this was because Crystal's father was a truck driver. He regularly argued with Opal, which sometimes resulted in Leslie being kicked out. Opal, said Leslie, would also lock her husband out of the house. But Jim painted a different picture, saying that any punishment Leslie was given was because of his behaviour, and that one of the times Leslie said he was kicked out was actually him leaving to visit Crystal. Whatever the truth is about the Arnold family's home life, the family was destroyed for good on the 27th of September, 1958. Leslie was looking forward to his plans that evening, as he was taking Crystal to the drive-in. He'd received permission to drive the family's Mercury. According to Leslie, things changed when, at 11am, his mother overheard him talking to Crystal on the phone. Crystal apparently overheard Opal calling her no good as she spoke to Leslie. Leslie told Opal that she could no longer treat Crystal that way and said she'd be sorry if the criticism continued. When the phone call ended, Opal told Leslie that he was not allowed to go out that night. He responded by punching a wall. There was silence for a while, but mother and son soon began arguing again. Opal told Leslie to go outside to calm down and he complied. When being interviewed by the authorities later on, Leslie said that this was when he decided to turn to murder. At 2.30pm, the 16-year-old snuck into his parents' bedroom. He knew that a 22 calibre semi-automatic Remington rifle was kept in their closet. In the dining room, he confronted his mother with the weapon. As she stood in the doorway to the kitchen, Leslie said Opal laughed at him, saying, What are you going to do? Shoot me? Leslie responded by shooting Opal six times in the chest. Upon realising that she was dying, Leslie told his mother he was sorry. Bill then came home, his hands full with bags of groceries. After realising what had happened, he ran at his son. He attempted to hit him, but missed. When Bill tried to hit Leslie again, Leslie shot him six times. It took Leslie 30 minutes to come up with a plan. After hiding his parents' bodies in the basement and putting the bloody dining room rug in the garage, Leslie called Rose Grossman, a friend of the family. Leslie told her he needed her to look after Jim for a while. His parents had had to leave town to search for his senile grandfather, who had been travelling to California by train, only for him to leave the train in Wyoming and wander off. This, of course, was a lie. When Jim walked home after ushering the matinee performance of the Axar Ben Rodeo, Leslie met him outside their house and took him to Rose's. As Opal was no longer able to stop Leslie's plans, he picked up Crystal and her brother and watched No Time for Sergeants and the Undead at the 84th and Centre Drive-In. After dropping off Crystal and her brother, Leslie headed home and tried to sleep in the car. But the cold got too much and Leslie went to his room, closing the door behind him and turning the radio up. 
Leslie attended church the next morning, but he didn't stay long. The sermon was about crime and he didn't need to be reminded of his guilt. Knowing that he couldn't leave his parents' bodies in the basement, he borrowed a shovel from a neighbour and began digging at night under a lilac bush in the southeast corner of the backyard. He tied a belt around Bill's ankles, which allowed him to drag his 155-pound father up a short flight of stairs and into the garage. Bill's body then ended up in the hole. He moved Opal in the same way and dumped her body on top of his father's. The bloodied rug was then thrown into the big Papillion Creek. At midnight, Rose Grossman answered a knock on her door. It was Leslie who was stood on the other side of the door. He said he wanted to be with Jim. The first indication that something wasn't right came to Rose when she noticed that Leslie's palms were covered in blisters. Leslie continued to lie about the whereabouts of his parents. He asked one of Bill's employees to take over the running of his father's office for a while. He continued going to school and after a few days, Leslie and Jim moved back home. When Leslie returned home on the 5th of October, there was a surprise waiting for him. A surprise that came in the form of his grandparents. His grandfather was the same person he'd told people his parents were looking for. Leslie's story would unravel over the coming days. A couple of days later... Rose Grossman received a call from Leslie's grandmother. She wanted to know if Opal left instructions before leaving town. Leslie must have told his grandparents that Opal and Bill were out of town because when Rose asked about Leslie's missing grandfather, his grandmother reacted with confusion. Rose did some research and learned that there was no train scheduled at the time Leslie said Opal and Bill left Omaha. A neighbour then told Rose about the arguments Leslie often had with his mother. Rose contacted the authorities. Rose wasn't the only one to reach out to the police. While Leslie and Crystal attended a football game, his great-uncle reported Opal and Bill missing, informing the police that Leslie was the last person to see his parents alive. On the 11th of October, Leslie was questioned by detectives. It didn't take long for Leslie to tell the truth, and that afternoon he showed the police where he'd buried his parents. Leslie was charged with two counts of first-degree murder. When news of the murders got out, the police had to control traffic as so many people kept driving by the Arnold home. Prosecutor Paul Hanley believed that Leslie had loaded the rifle the day of the murders, but Leslie said the rifle was already loaded. Employees at Aksar Ben later found a box of 22 calibre bullets Leslie had thrown over the fence. A psychiatric exam concluded that Leslie was sane. One psychiatrist believed that Opal's behaviour influenced Leslie's decision. Another psychiatrist thought that Leslie was remorseful. In a letter to the Grossmans written before his trial, Leslie wrote... I have learned a great deal since I've been in here and I wish I knew then what I know now. 
My parents were wonderful people. This I learned too late and I'm sorry. How I ever went so wrong I'll never know. I've got a lot of making up to do. Leslie became prison number 20841 at the Nebraska State Penitentiary after pleading guilty to two reduced counts of second-degree murder for which he was sentenced to life behind bars as part of a plea deal. Leslie completed his high school education and was considered to be a model prisoner. He worked many jobs, including being a tutor and editor of the prison newspaper. Crystal's parents became his legal guardians. Leslie appealed against his conviction, arguing that he hadn't been told of his right against self-incrimination, that he was pressured into pleading guilty, and that he was locked up for eight months before the plea deal so the publicity would lessen. His appeal was unsuccessful. Although Leslie sometimes got into trouble, including complaints about his attitude, Leslie was given permission to live in a dormitory that housed low-risk prisoners in 1965. This dorm was located outside of the main prison walls, but within the prison's perimeter fence, which was 12 feet tall and topped off with three strands of barbed wire. Bars covered the dorm windows, the entrance was locked down and guards supervised. This dorm was where Leslie began to plot his escape from prison with fellow prisoner Jim Harding. Leslie may well have been released from prison early, as at the time Nebraska's Pardons Board often commuted the life sentences of murderers to a set number of years, allowing them to be released on parole. State law required Leslie to serve ten years before being eligible. But this wasn't early enough for Leslie, and the planning commenced. Jim Harding, aged 32, had received a life sentence for killing a man during an armed robbery. Harding and Leslie set the date for their escape, the 14th of July, 1967. A prisoner paroled in May agreed to assist the pair with their plan. On the 5th of July, the parolee placed an ad in the personal section of the Omaha World Herald that read, NOF arrives July 14th. What NOF stands for is not clear, but this ad confirmed to Leslie and Harding that their plan was to go ahead. The parolee drove by the prison and threw a cardboard tube over the fence. It contained hacksaw blades and two rubber masks and was collected by Harding on one of his morning walks around the prison yard. The two would skip dinner to saw at the bars that covered the window in the music room. Once the task was completed, chewing gum was used to hold the bars in place. The 14th of July finally arrived. Leslie and Harding hid pillows and blankets under their bedding to make them appear occupied. The rubber masks were used to make heads for the bodies. The fact that one of the masks was of Groucho Marx didn't put the pair off. Harding simply cut the moustache to make it look less obvious. Leslie and Harding made their way downstairs to the music room and escaped. 
They then ran 30 feet to the fence line. The fence was lit and a guard tower stood 100 yards away. If the guards looked in their direction, the pair would be seen. But luck was on their side. A jacket was thrown over the barbed wire. Leslie climbed over first. They then ran over the railroad tracks and then 150 yards to a clump of trees where the parolee was waiting with a car. Leslie and Harding were driven to Omaha where they changed into everyday clothing and cut off the plastic bracelets they wore. They were dropped off at the West Lanes bowling alley. Leslie then called Jim Child. He was counting on his childhood friend's help. Child was studying to be a Presbyterian minister and was home for the summer. He'd visited Leslie six days earlier but wasn't expecting a phone call. He filled a gym bag with clothes, made some sandwiches and drove with his girlfriend to the bowling alley in his father's Chevy. He took Leslie and Harding to the train station in Council Bluffs, but upon discovering that the next train wasn't due to depart for another six hours, they drove to the Greyhound bus depot in Omaha. Child bought the escapees bus tickets and gave them $40. Leslie and Harding boarded the 3am bus to Chicago separately. It wasn't until 7am that the guards realised Leslie and Harding had vanished. Police across East Nebraska were notified and a 30 mile area around the prison was searched. Leslie and Harding arrived in downtown Chicago at 12pm. They went to a Catholic church and received money for a night's stay at the YMCA after saying they were down on their luck. The next day, the two separated. Leslie found work at a restaurant in the Polish Triangle area and moved in with a woman. He met up with Harding once more, a meeting that they had pre-arranged. At the meeting, they decided to go their separate ways for good. In the official report about the escape, the dummies weren't mentioned. It's possible that the guards may never have known about the dummies, as it's believed that other prisoners realised that Leslie and Harding had escaped and got rid of the dummies to give the escapees more time. The FBI became involved, and after seeing his name on the prison visitor log, they questioned Jim Child. He revealed nothing. The escape did lead to a change in prison policy. The only good photo the prison had of Leslie was the one taken when he first entered the prison system, aged 16. When he escaped, he was 24 years old and looked different. From then on, all prisoners had to have their photo taken regularly. While luck may have aided their escape, it ran out for Harding the next year. By May 1968, Harding was living in Los Angeles. At that time, people were on the lookout for Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassin, James Earl Ray. A woman spotted Harding in a bar and thought he looked similar to Ray. The police soon got a hold of Harding and he soon found himself back in the Nebraska State Penitentiary. 
The state decided to commute his life sentence and Harding was paroled in 1976. He began working at the Civic Auditorium in Omaha and got married. Harding ended his days in Oregon where he died of cancer in 2008. The search for Leslie, however, turned out quite different. It's a search that has lasted for decades. Leslie is still listed by the Nebraska Department of Correctional Services as an escaped inmate. He remains the last man to successfully escape from the penitentiary. After Leslie escaped, stories began to circulate about sightings of the wanted man. Crystal's father reported that Leslie once stopped by his home about a year after he escaped. He ran when a neighbour recognised him. There were rumours that Leslie was arrested during the clashes between police and protesters outside the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago, but was released before the police realised his identity. In 1976, the Omaha police said that a couple of years earlier, they received a teletype from an agency in Oregon asking if a William L. Arnold was still wanted. The man in question was released before the Omaha police responded. Jeff Britton, however, came up with a different theory with regards to Leslie's whereabouts. As an investigator for the Nebraska Department of Correctional Services, he looked into the case. Britton interviewed people who knew Leslie, including the parolee who had helped Leslie and Harding escape, checked fingerprint databases, subpoenaed phone records and commissioned an age-progressed image of the escapee. At a law enforcement conference, Britton learned about a technique that allowed investigators to see if anyone had ever searched their names on the internet. Britton put this method to the test and discovered that someone had searched Nebraska investigator Jeff Britton and that the location of the internet service provider was in South America. He also found that someone had searched for Leslie on the Corrections Department's online database using his prison number. But it was the search of Britain's name that took place in South America that uncovered more clues. In December 1968, a William Leslie Arnold registered with the Brazilian government as a resident alien. The document had Leslie's real date of birth and place of birth. A note on the back of the card indicated that Interpol knew the American citizen was wanted by the FBI and asked for more information. A second note was added in 1971 and although it is hard to decipher, it ends with the phrase without capture. A check of the taxpayer database in Brazil failed to find anyone with Leslie's name. Interestingly, Jim Harding had spoken about how Leslie had once told him that if he fathered a child in Brazil, he wouldn't be extradited back to the United States. Harding spent the rest of his life believing that Leslie had fled to Brazil. 
After Opal and Bill were killed, Leslie's brother Jim was sent to live with an aunt and uncle in Kansas City. The principal at his Omaha grade school told him not to tell anyone in his new home why he'd moved there and Jim took the advice, telling people his parents had died in a car crash. Jim only visited Leslie once when he was behind bars. Jim later married, had two children and taught music in Missouri. But the loss of his parents stayed with him and he constantly felt guilt and anger to the point where Jim said he began to resemble Jacob Marley in A Christmas Carol. It wasn't until the 1990s that Jim sought therapy and as part of his counselling he finally told his children, who at that point were in their 30s, exactly what had happened back in 1958. Jim believes Leslie is dead as he feels it's easier to deal with his brother that way. Speaking to the Omaha World Herald, Jim said, I think about the whole situation almost every day. I have forgiven him, but I don't want him to show up. <laughs>